0: Morning, church, and welcome once again to our service of worship today. I pray this finds you doing well. In his classic play, Romeo and Juliet, William Shakespeare asks the question, what's in a name? What's in a name? Well, a lot more than a lot of people might think. When Jennifer and I were naming our children, we gave it a lot of thought and prayer because the meaning of the names we chose were really important to us. In the Bible, names have incredible significance. In ancient Hebrew culture, a person's name might refer to their character or personality. It might relate to an event surrounding their birth or indicate the purpose God had for that person's life. The meaning of the name conveyed the very character and nature of a person. Well, today we are gathered in the name that is above every other name the name of Jesus Christ. More people on earth have known the name Jesus than any other name in the past 2,000 years. In fact, one estimate suggests that in that time, over 8 billion people have claimed to be followers of Jesus. And so as Christians, to our ears, the name of Jesus is not only the sweetest name on earth, but the greatest, highest, most wonderful and powerful name in all the universe. That's the reality of the name of Jesus. His name has power. It's interesting. You you can get a lot of different people together with a lot of different religious backgrounds, and and each one may claim to believe in God. But as soon as you mention Jesus' name, the, the dynamic of the conversation changes. We were discussing this in Bible study this past week, how we often will say, God bless you. And most people seem okay with that. But if you say, Jesus Christ bless you, or God bless you in the name of Jesus, the reaction may be very different. The reason is because there is power in the name of Jesus. Now, the literal name Jesus is not inherently powerful in and of itself. It is powerful because of who Jesus Christ is, his identity. Lord means master, Jesus means savior, and Christ means the anointed one sent from God. So Jesus' name is all-powerful and holy because Jesus Christ is God's one and only Son, our Savior and Lord, our Master, the Master of the universe, the Word made flesh, God incarnate. And when we declare his name, we declare his lordship over our lives and over everything. And the power of Jesus' name is the theme of our passage today in Acts chapter 3. It's the power behind the miraculous healing of the crippled man that we're going to look at, and it's the point of Peter's second sermon which explains that miracle, the second of his five gospel messages in the book of Acts. So I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles now to Acts chapter 3, and I'm going to be reading the first 20 verses here, beginning at verse 1, Acts chapter 3. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders'. But this is how God fulfilled what He had foretold through all the prophets, saying that His Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that He may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His word today. What a story! We, we see here, verse 1, Peter and John are on their way to the temple for afternoon prayers, which took place at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, many Jewish Christians continued to attend temple services for some time after the church was formed, which was very common during this time of transition. Well, as Peter and John make their way to the temple, they come across this lame man who is begging for money. And by faith in Jesus' name, Peter reaches out and heals this man point blank. And the man starts running and jumping and praising God in the temple courts to the amazement of everybody around. Which brings us to Peter's sermon that we saw there in, in verse 11. And there we read, where while the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. Now, this was a large area outside the temple, also known as Solomon's porch. And this would be the platform for Peter to preach. You see, as amazing as the healing of the crippled man was, that that was really just the Holy Spirit's introduction to Peter's second sermon. Though the miracle had created interest and curiosity, Peter knew that it didn't actually bring anyone to Jesus. Even though this crowd of people were amazed, they weren't saved. They needed an explanation for what they'd seen, for for what had just happened. And Peter knows it, which is why he says this in verse 12. Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk? These people should have known that two fishermen from Galilee could never do anything like this in their own power. The Israelites already acknowledged that, that God alone had the power to do miracles. Their problem was they denied that Jesus was God in the flesh and that he had given his followers his divine power in his name. In other words, they knew that God was, they just didn't know who God was. And so Peter and John were there to tell them, to explain that it was in Jesus' name, that is because of who he is and the faith that comes through him, that this man who had been crippled from birth was healed. But this healing was only a sign, an illustration of the ultimate spiritual healing, the salvation that is found through faith in Jesus' name alone. And so in in his sermon that follows, in in a series of paradoxes, Peter explains who Jesus is using five other names of our Lord, which we're going to take a closer look at today. He contrasts the holiness of these names of Christ with, with the heinousness Of people's crimes against him, juxtaposing their guilt with his glory. So in verse 13, Peter starts off by saying this, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. See, Peter knows his audience well. Since his message was directed primarily to Israelites, Peter chooses a description of God that would be most familiar to them the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. This was the name by which God spoke to Moses when he called him to deliver Israel in Exodus 3. And he's saying that the very God that they had come there to the temple to worship, he is the one who has glorified his servant, Jesus. Servant, that word he uses was a familiar Old Testament designation of the Messiah. And it's so important because in using the word servant, Peter is claiming continuity with the Old Testament prophets. He's declaring that the same God they preached, the same Messiah they promised. In the minds of Jews, many of whom knew the scriptures very well, these terms about God's servants would have brought the words of Isaiah to mind. Isaiah 40 right through Isaiah 53, in which Isaiah speaks of the suffering servant. Well, Peter is basically connecting that dot to Jesus for them. Jesus who said of himself, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Peter's basically telling them it's it's your God, the God of Israel, the God of the covenant and the prophets who has put his stamp of approval on his son, Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is your savior. This is my servant, Jesus. It's a powerful opening line, but What Peter says next is even more striking. Peter doesn't just tell them that God loves them and and has a wonderful plan for their lives, does he? No, he does anything but. Here's what he says about Jesus in verse 13. He says, you handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. Wow, Peter calls his audience out. He doesn't take a, a seeker-friendly approach here. No, he he drops the gloves and tells them the hard, awful truth, that they are guilty of handing over God's servant Jesus to be killed. They're guilty of disowning him. Peter clearly wasn't worried about political correctness here, was he? He comes out of the gates, guns blazing, as it were, because the fact of the matter is this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, including God's chosen people, the Israelites, they are guilty and will perish if they do not repent and turn in faith for forgiveness to God's son, Jesus. Jesus is the most common name of our Lord in the New Testament. It's the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua, which is made up of two parts, Yah, which is short for Yahweh, and Hoshea, which means salvation. So it means Yahweh saves or the Lord is salvation. In Matthew 1, when the Lord appeared to to Joseph in his dream, he said, She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. See, his name is Jesus, not because he is our example or, or our guide or our leader or our friend or our teacher, even though he is all of those things, to be sure. His name is Jesus because he is our Savior who will save his people from their sins. But Instead of embracing him as their savior, his people rejected him. At the beginning of John's gospel, we read, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So, right out of the gates, Peter boldly confronts the crowd with the enormity of their sin in rejecting and executing their Messiah. He doesn't tiptoe around it because without an understanding and acceptance of the tremendous weight of our guilt, of our sin, we will never see our need to be saved, our need for the forgiveness that God offers through Jesus Christ. That is the necessary foundation of the gospel message, my friends. Only those who understand and admit their guilt as sinners will recognize their need for a savior. Well, God made certain that both Jew and Gentile shared in the guilt of Jesus' death. So let's just be clear about what, put Jesus on the cross. It was sin, my sin, your sin, their sin, our sin, all sin, which sets the starkest of contrasts in verse 14, where Peter says, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. To emphasize their guilt, Peter repeats the charge that they disowned Jesus, the holy and righteous one, equating him with God. See, the term holy one means separated unto God, hagios. It's used more than 40 times in the Old Testament as the most high and glorious title for Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. In fact, the holy one of Israel was also Isaiah's favorite title for God. Back in John 6, Peter said, we have believed and have come to know that you are the holy one of God. He said that of Jesus. Even the demons knew that truth, that, that Jesus was the Holy One. See it in Luke 4, 34. Now, the word righteous here means being innocent of any crime, which only highlights the people's guilt in the events that led up to Jesus' crucifixion as they begged for Jesus that their innocent Messiah to be beaten, tortured, and crucified, and that the guilty murderer Barabbas be released to them in his place. But then Peter takes it a step further in verse 15. He says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Okay, you killed the author of life. This is the greatest uh, paradox here, isn't it? They killed the author of life while demanding the release of a killer. Barabbas took life. Jesus gave it. Barabbas destroyed it. Jesus designed it. Now the term translated author me means the pioneer or originator of something. Peter uses it to describe Jesus as the originator of life itself. Again, it's a claim of deity for Jesus. He is God. He is the pioneer of life as we know it. Paul writes of Jesus in Colossians 1.16, Through him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. All things have been created by him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. course, the New Testament repeatedly describes Jesus as the source of life. John writes, in him was life, and that life was the light of men in John 1.4. Jesus himself also claimed to be the source of life. In John 11, he declared to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And in John 14.6, he simply said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here, Peter is saying, you killed the author of life. To every Jew, God alone was the author of life. So Peter here is claiming that Jesus is God and they executed him. He's saying, you're a bunch of murderers. But Peter's message, of course, does not end with the death of the author of life, but with the resurrection of the author of life. He says this, but God raised him from the dead. And Peter and his disciples, all the disciples, were witnesses of this, as he says. Peter's claim here is powerful evidence for the resurrection. If Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead, that claim would have been easy to disprove. Had the Jewish leaders been able to produce Jesus' body, there'd be nothing to this. It would have been over before it even started, but they didn't because they couldn't. Because Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead. He was alive And so the apostles' testimony was ironclad. And then Peter ties their witness, his and the other disciples' witness of Jesus' resurrection, to the crowd's collective witness of the healing of this lame man. And he points to Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him as the power behind all of it. Look at verse 16. He says, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. See, based on the miraculous healing of of the crippled man in Jesus' name, everyone there were, were witnesses of Jesus' resurrection power at work there. So then... This man literally stood as evidence to everyone around of who Jesus really was, the author of life, the holy and righteous one of God himself. See, not only was Jesus alive, but this miracle was done on the basis of faith in Jesus' name. Jesus' name is the healing agent here, my friends, Because the name of Jesus, again, stands for the reality of Jesus and the authority of Jesus. His name stands for who he is. In Semitic thought, a name doesn't just identify or distinguish a person. It expresses the very nature of his being, as I mentioned earlier, which means that the nature of the person is present and available in the name of the person. So then, if that person is God and Jesus is then all the presence and power of God is available through faith in his name. When Peter said in verse 6, in the name of Jesus of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk, he meant basically, even though I'm speaking the words, Jesus is now healing you. When I speak in his name with the faith that he has given me, he is acting, not me. Look at verse 17 and 18. Peter continues, now fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets saying that his Messiah would suffer. Peter reassures those listening, even though they acted in ignorance, even though they did not know what they were doing, as Jesus acknowledged when he prayed for the people from the cross. Uh, their rejection and execution of the Messiah had not sidelined God's plan or disqualified Jesus as the Messiah. Through the prophets, God had made clear that Christ would suffer. And those prophecies had now been fulfilled all throughout the Old Testament in passages like Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. The prophets foresaw and foretold Jesus' death. Well, in this sermon, Peter presents our Lord Jesus as servant Savior, holy and righteous one, author of life, and Christ, the Messiah. He convicts all those listening of disowning, denying, and executing Jesus. But hope resounds as Peter tells them what they need to do in response. Verse 19, repent then and turn to God so that your your sins may be wiped out that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. As he did in his first sermon in Acts 2, Peter calls the crowd to repent. The literal meaning of the word repent means to change one's mind or one's purpose. But it's a change of mind that results in a change of, of being, a change of heart, a change of behavior. It's a turning And Peter reinforces that meaning when he says, repent then and turn, which can also be translated, be converted, a word used often in the New Testament to speak of sinners turning to God. When we repent of our sins and turn in faith to Jesus Christ, we will be made right with God and saved unto him in Jesus name. And that's exactly what happens here. As great as the miracle of the healing the crippled man is, Peter's gospel message is an even more powerful work. Even though Peter and John end up being seized and thrown in jail that night by the temple guard and Sadducees, look at the result. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 4. Here's what we read. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Okay, so the downside was, Peter and John are thrown in jail. The upside, roughly 2,000 more people come to faith in and through the name of Jesus Christ. They pass from death to eternal life by hearing and responding in faith to the gospel message. So, let's just be clear about something. That doesn't happen <laughs> in any name. It doesn't happen in the name of Muhammad. It can't happen in the name of Buddha, or in the name of good works, or in the name of science, or in the name of reason, or in the name of karma, or in the name of world religion. It can only happen through faith in the name of Jesus Christ. John says at the end of his gospel, in John 20, verse 31, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. My friends, may we never underestimate, minimize, or forget the immeasurable power and effectiveness, authority of Jesus' name. It is His name alone that brings forgiveness of sins, salvation, life, healing, wholeness, peace, purpose, victory, significance, and meaning to everything that we do. In Philippians 2 9 to 11, We read that God gave Jesus the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So make no mistake about it. One day, every person will bow before Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. If you are not a follower of Jesus, I urge you, to repent, to acknowledge and admit your sin and turn away from it in faith to God's son, Jesus. Surrender your life to him today, to him who died on the cross to pay for the debt of our sin in full, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to give us eternal life. And then you, you too can enjoy complete access to God the father through the powerful name of Jesus Christ, his one and only son. For those of us who have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus' name, Colossians 3.17, I think that's our response. Whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And that starts right now. In fact, I think the best response for us right now as followers of Jesus Christ is to bow down and worship him, to adore and magnify the most precious and powerful name of Jesus. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you in the name of Jesus, the name that is above every other name. You are servant, Savior, Savior, holy and righteous one, author of life and Messiah. And we honor and bless your great name alone. We thank you for saving us and pray for boldness to speak the name of Jesus to this world, to proclaim to those around us that there is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved from our sin. I ask that you would grow our faith, Lord, Give us boldness and confidence in using your name, in in acting and speaking and believing and serving and praying in your name to your glory, God. And I pray all of these things in the strong, saving, matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.
1: round Bestia scribe and crown crown Him, Lord of all, will join the everlasting song.
0: Now receive the Lord's blessing. This is from Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.